0: This episode is brought to you in part by Palm Beach Atlantic University's fully online Certificate in Cultural Apologetics program. Learn how to show the reasonableness and desirability of the gospel from leading Christian philosophers. For more information, go to pbaapologetics.com. Just the sense of
1: me kind of being like a curiosity to the other students even it just it so otherized me that i just felt like there's something wrong with me that there's Mm -hmm. there's some kind of a deficit because i'm not really welcomed here
2: Mm -hmm.
3: this is where you're from an origin story podcast at the intersection of faith and culture that digs into the influences and experiences that shape who we are today Join us as we gain insight into the Bible's wisdom for all, regardless of where we're from. Hey, y'all, this is Rasul Barry. Thanks for joining me on Where You're From. This week, I'm talking with trauma counselor and author Sheila Wise Rowe. She has a remarkable story which began as a young girl thrust into the racial tensions of post segregated America. Those experiences informed her calling as a trauma counselor in post-apartheid South Africa and led to the important work that she does now, addressing racial trauma. You can find out more about Sheila and her books by clicking on the links in the show notes or by visiting where are from.org. That's where Ya from.org.
1: Please join me as I ask Sheila Wise Row, where you're from? I'm from Boston and was born and raised in Boston. I grew up most of my life in Dorchester, Massachusetts.
3: Okay. So tell me a little bit about what it means to grow up in Boston.
1: Well, you know what? One thing with Boston is that it's, in many ways, a community of contrasts. When I was growing up, you had white communities and there were black communities. There were Asian communities, Latino communities, and they were very much separated in many ways, and yet I think that at the same time, there was a cultural connection depending on the community Mm. that you lived in, but growing up, there was a sense of our community, Mm. and so it was a rich time. We had limited resources in the community where I lived, but collectively, we kind of made it work. Like everyone, we have a sense of home, Mm. and even when home was a difficult place, some of us may never want to go back there, Mm. but... Ultimately, that longing for home is our home with the Lord. But in this current lives, we long for home as well.
3: Yeah. So help me paint a picture of your time growing up in Dorchester. You mentioned you had family there.
1: Yeah. So my parents were born in Virginia and then they emigrated, emigrated. That's too funny. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, kind of was like that. So they came to Boston because my father was in the Navy, and it was a culture shock in a way, because the way in which they lived in the South was a lot more communal and relational. We still had a bit of that because some relatives had moved ahead of time. So my Parents bought a big Victorian house that had three apartments. And so at any given point, there was a relative living in one of the apartments. Mm -hmm. And our neighbors, when we initially moved, it was diverse, but transitioning as more black folk were coming up from the south and moving into the area a lot of the white folk moved out. There were nine of us, nine kids, growing up in Dorchester. And both of my parents were there. My parents separated when I was about 12. Mm. And so at that point, it was my mom raising the nine of us. And I am the second oldest. And yeah, it was a kind of a crazy, chaotic If you can think about nine children kind of running around. Wow. Yeah,
3: yeah. that's a lot of folks. That's a lot of folks. So tell me what your relationship was like with your father before. Um, You know what?
1: I always say that he brought like this sense of order. And there are ways in which my father was very aspirational. So Mm. he wanted more. He was a really brilliant man. And ironically, part of my research with my book, Healing Racial Trauma, was talking to my uncle because he's the only surviving elder at this point. And he really revealed some stories around my dad and how, because they were orphaned when my father was, I think he was five at the time, and my uncle was about two or three. And They were raised by their grandfather. He always had this striving for more, and that whole notion of home and connection with his parents it wasn't there. And so in many ways, it kind of spilled into how he raised us, how he, he wanted structure, I think, to try to create some sense of safety. Mm-hmm. But he was very, in many ways, authoritarian. And yet, we did have a sense that he loved us, but there was a real strictness that was Mm. there. And so that was a little bit hard.
3: Got it. Yeah. And I noticed you mentioned in both of your books, this moment he had when he was about five, that was really pivotal in his life. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So there was a epidemic that came through that part of Virginia. So Mm. tuberculosis was just running rampant through the community. At that point in time, there were no hospitals for black folk.
3: Yeah. Okay. We need to double click on that. When you say no hospitals for Black folk. That's another way of saying that Black people could not go into and be treated in the hospitals that were set up in that community. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Because it's just like, it's almost hard to imagine an America that way. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so as a result of that, they may have been like five, six or seven deaths within the family, just that mm. family alone. But as a result of that kind of trauma of watching his father die, the baby brother die, the mother die... It just really scarred him. There was a hole there, I think, for much of his life.
3: Wow. How do you think that impacted his understanding of race? And did that come out in the way that he interacted or taught you?
1: Well, when I was very young, he and my mother were members of the Nation of Islam. So Mm. they were following Malcolm X at the time, selling bean pies and... (laughs) In the newspaper and going to the services. And then after Martin was killed, Malcolm was killed, it was just my parents were very disillusioned by that. I think they were wanting some level of change, and yet to see the deaths, Hmm. and this is just a small slither of the deaths that happened during that whole civil rights period, but that certainly affected him for a bit. But then I think he really then began to think about, well, how do I make change, even on the political level? But I think growing up for him, and as well as some of the things that happened in Dorchester, there was a real frustration. And I think that it's not a unique story. It's like your legs are cut up from under you, and then get up and you try again. And he was that kind of person. So I would say definitely, even despite all of that, someone who continuously persevered and continuously strove Mm. to do more. And even in terms of access to college funding, like he and his brother got accepted to MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Wow. And they were there for about a year, but they couldn't get <laughs> access to government funding for school. And they only had mm. a little bit of money from their work. So they had to drop out. So that, I mean, extraordinary man. Yeah. but you
3: mentioned that even that dream was somehow shut down yeah. by not being able to afford it.
1: Yeah. And, He actually did get his bachelor's degree. He got a master's. He actually went to law school. Anyway, but at the same time, he worked (laughs) for a company that basically worked with computers. And this is like the early days of computers, like in the late 70s. -hmm. Like, so the computer would be like an entire room. But before becoming a lawyer, he did this. So he would go around the world and work on computers.
3: I mean, so this was clearly somebody that had a very profound impact on your life and a presence in the family. Yeah. So what was that like to experience that separation at such a formative age?
1: Yeah, obviously the financial piece was huge. It was devastating. And he moved to California, so Mm. we didn't have contact with him. So those years we struggled. We did have, you know, help in terms of occasionally relatives helping and supporting my mom, worked multiple jobs. When I started my first job, summer job, I was like 12. And so (laughs) we all kind of pitched in, but we really did struggle. So yes, I know what it's like to not have heat. Yes, I know what it means Mm. to the water being cut off, both of those in the middle of winter. Mm. Yes, I know what it's like to rely on government food to supplement the food that we had. And yet we survived. Mm. And I'm not belittling that or saying, oh, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. Yeah. But I think that one of the things that really helped us was that, you know, my mom was definitely a very caring, wonderful person. She, so many people just absolutely loved her. She was the most open, warm person. And she became like a really Pentecostal on fire. <laughs> <laughs> believer. her. She was a welcoming presence and always a prayer warrior. So with that being
3: said, like, how did you end up coming to faith and, you know, just really encountering Jesus?
1: Yeah. So my parents, after leaving the Nation of Islam, they were kind of lukewarm. My aunt was also a member of a Pentecostal church. And so my parents were like, yeah, sure, go to the Sunday school class. And so we would go and we actually had in school and I haven't talked about the busing program that I was a part of. But we went to a particular school that there was a break in the day where you could go to a Catholic service or you can go to a Protestant church during that time. And so I had a sense that God is real. Not sure what, how that really connected to how I live my life or the choices that I make. Like, I try to be a good person. And then I went to college and the wheels came off. I was just, no. <laughs> just like the faith was out the window. And I graduated from college and I then just was working as a social worker for the state and burnt out, like severely, because it was really difficult when I saw kind of the disparities in treatment and a lot of predominantly black kids being pulled out of homes and and not really services available to maintain the families at that point in time, and even in terms of reunification. So that was difficult to see and difficult to be a part of that institution. And so I stepped down. I was there close to three years working as a social worker. And then I decided at that point, I'm going to open a store. I'm going to open up a store, because I loved vintage clothing. And it was in the south end of Boston. Um, At the same time, then I just got involved in things that I, you know, it was a kind of a slippery slope. I had this relationship with a guy who was a cocaine dealer. Mm. And I always say, like, I don't even know how someone moves from, you know, I'm a social worker. I want to help save the world to I'm now, you know, with someone who's dealing and taking cocaine. And yet I didn't know, like, how do I extricate myself from this situation? So it just escalated to the point that it became really dangerous. And at that point, I just hit rock bottom. And I can't say, oh, I'm an addict. I was not. But I knew that I was a in terms of relationship, I was an addict. And so I needed I needed help. And that point of crashing, I remember, like I've had these conversations with my mom along the way about faith issues because this person had a background of faith. So when we talk about God, like when he was high, And then I would go to my mom and just telling her everything that had happened and, you know, her praying like she always does. Mm -hmm. And then I remember I was watching something and someone had kind of an altar call at that point. And then Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, you know what? I've spent my entire life trying to be in control and I'm not in control. So if I'm not in control, well, then who is in control? There has to be someone bigger than me And that was that point of having hit rock bottom, recognizing I'm not in control, that somebody is, and that's God, and that what Jesus done on the cross on my behalf, and reconciling that relationship then. That was the point of that night committing my life to the Lord.
3: I mean, wow. There are so many twists and turns to that testimony. I mean, between someone who was just such a bad influence in accelerating that rock bottom being also a mouthpiece that got you thinking about spiritual things yeah, yeah. to then seeing, okay, I'm here and I'm watching this on a TV screen and I'm making this spiritual commitment yeah, and it's stuck. Yeah. It wow. Did. God it can did. use anything.
1: Oh right? yeah, absolutely.
3: Absolutely. <laughs> so I want to rewind and go back because you mentioned Boston and the busing scenario, which I've read some just remarkable things about and it sounds like you were in the midst of it. So kind of walk us through how that kind of national moment impacted you in in a very personal way.
1: Yeah, so the bussing program that I initially started predated mandated bussing. Okay. So it was a situation where the schools in the black community were horrible. Not enough chairs for students, students crammed into classrooms. It just really, it was just horrible, crumbling buildings.
3: And so just so I can understand how it got there, right? Was it based on the budget? Was it based on property taxes in the neighborhood? Or was there some other factor that caused the schools to be in such a different, drastic, poor condition than the white schools?
1: You know, the thing is that when we first moved into the area that we were in, And as I said, it was a mixed area, but it was quickly transitioning. And what we noticed over time was that services were less and less. And so the ways in which funds were allocated in certain communities, a lot of it, you're correct, is tied into property values. And so if a community is labeled as a black community, then it's one where the property values are going to plummet because the services are not there. You know, the school quality has dropped. And so then there isn't the funds to actually improve the quality, get better teachers, you know, renovate the buildings, et cetera. And so over time, you see that level of deterioration. And the school department refused to even entertain the idea that there was inequality in the system Mm. across the board. And it was really evident. And so as a result of that, the black parents just were like, you know what? We're going to do something. So we have got to get materials and stuff for our kids, get the schools renovated, et cetera. And so they really pushed the school department to make some changes, and they refused. And so what the black parents discovered was that there was this little ordinance that said that if there is an opening in any school across the city, and maybe it's 15 minutes away, 20 minutes, 30 minutes away, you can go to that school even though you don't live in that community, if there's an open seat. Oh. And so because of that, they started the Operation Exodus program. So that was a program that was started in the 60s. My parents were involved in that early formation of it. And so my, me, my older sister, brother, initially were the ones who went. And so got on a little small yellow bus and we went to a school that was like 99% white.
3: Okay, just a couple things. One, I was just thinking about redlining oftentimes was the federal backed process of determining property values. Yes. And it's called redline because they on the maps anytime there were black people in the communities those properties were valued less. Yeah. So I'm just trying to see like the process. So you have this aspect where the homes are valued less not just because we go in and we go oh this home is less valuable than another right. but because it's right. been already by the government declared less valuable yeah. because black people are there. Yeah. So then the less value creates lower property taxes, Absolutely. which then creates less resources for schools, which yep. then also combines with people obstructing the process of it, those schools getting funding. Yeah. I noticed the title was Operation Exodus. That yes. is a, a interesting yes. title yeah. for a program designed to provide education. Where do you think that came from? Like, yeah. what's the significance of that name?
1: Well, it's very much rooted in the Old Testament and the whole Exodus story. And the whole thing was, OK, we're going to Exodus these really hard horrible, poorly serviced schools in the black community, and we're going to find the promised land mm. elsewhere. And so that was the hope for that. Mm-hmm. I don't think our parents, I didn't fully grasp like what that would entail, to be a handful of black students going into this mostly white school with all white teachers. In many cases, they've had no engagement with black people, period, let mm. alone children, and what that might be like. And so for me, it was traumatic. It was for my siblings as well. Mm.
3: Even though it was very close to your home, it felt like a world away. Yeah. Maybe if you could just share an example or a moment where you felt that alienation and the things that would have caused that trauma.
1: Yeah. You know, for me, it kind of started the day we got there. And the engagement with the principal of the school, it was clear, the communication that we got was like, we don't really want you here.
2: Mm.
1: And being accused of cheating, being humiliated in front of the class because Mm. there was this teacher saying that I tripped a student and just this sense of me kind of being like a curiosity to the other students even. It just, it so otherized me that I just felt like there's something wrong with me. That there's, mm-hmm. there's some kind of a deficit, because I'm not really welcomed here. Mm. And to have the kind of public humiliations. I was, you know, shy, very tender emotionally. So it was painful. It was hurtful. And to have like my, I was a hard worker. So I really studied hard, and and I did well. So to be accused of cheating, all of those things were just like kind of these emotional assaults that just Mm -hmm. kind of build up over time. How old were you at that time? Maybe seven. Wow. Yeah. So if you think about a kid that young, so, you know, you may look at it from an adult perspective and think, eh, not a big deal. But for a kid... You know, to be in this new environment doesn't feel welcomed. And then to be put on the spot in that way, that was horrific. Mm. And then I also had my siblings and my sister and her engagements with the teacher were really bad, like physically. And then you mentioned cheating. How did that come up? It wasn't even just one time. It was repeatedly I would do well in a test, and then it's like I couldn't possibly have done well without cheating. Wow. So it culminated with my parents actually coming up to the school several times and Mm. talking to the teachers and like, you know what, that's not her. There's no way that she cheated. And Mm. to be that young and not being able to understand that and not even able to understand what was going on. I wasn't thinking there are racial things that are happening, Mm. but I knew that I was different. And interestingly enough, it was if anybody was different. (laughs) So there was a kid who was from, I think he was Greek, and he played the violin. And so he was bullied mercilessly because he had a thick accent. I think he was a recent immigrant. And they just, wow. Yeah, and the thing that
3: is particularly moving about these stories. You hear some stories where people are targeted by their classmates or their peers, and that's the primary expression. But to hear your story have so much interaction with teachers, people in authority, right? and what that does to a sense of disorientation. Yeah. How do you think that that impacted you in your development?
1: Yeah. You know what? It certainly affected my sense of identity. So if you'd coupled both of those things, the teachers and the peers, I really was insecure in terms of my intellect, being a black girl. Like, what does that mean? And somehow feeling less than to a certain degree. And I carried that into middle school. But middle school was different in that that was the start of... The busing program had started in 74. And so by the time I got to middle school, they had been more intentional about what schools looked like. And so I was at Rosendale High, and we had black teachers and black administrators. It was still mostly white teachers, still mostly white students, but they had been more intentional, I think, having black folk there. That was transformative for me. To actually see Hmm. like a black teacher, to have a black educator around me, someone who I had the sense like they got it. They understood what it was like. And they were very encouraging and challenging when they needed to be. (laughs) That was healing, not totally healing, but it helped.
3: Hmm. You know, one of the things that I see the contrast between the obvious sense of biblically proportion hope that was attached to operation exodus yeah. as this way of overcoming the educational disparities and yet the actual injury and just trauma that you talked about being there when you once you got what seemed to be the promised land did, did that make it at all difficult for your parents to understand or the community because they had this triumph and now yeah. on the flip side now they're seeing this difficulty that these kids are experiencing uh,
1: you know what i I think that for me, I withheld a lot of information from my parents mm-hmm. and my siblings as well. And I think it was may have been true for a lot of the kids who were involved. Because there was a sense of, as you talk about hope, like our parents had all this hope. And so they fought really hard for us to have this opportunity. So we're going to go in and we're going to make the best of it, even though we're experiencing this trauma, et cetera. Like we didn't want to bring that home. To our parents, in some ways, kind of letting them down or saying, "Okay, that didn't work. And actually, it caused more harm Mm. than good. And so when mandated busing happened in 74, then it wasn't just our little Operation Exodus project. It became this citywide issue in which that's when we saw the eruptions, the riots, the throwing of bricks through buses and Molotov cocktails and fights and it was insane.
3: Okay. So, there's so many layers to unpack. Before we go there, let's talk about trauma because mm-hmm. we've used that word and let's define it. How would you describe trauma?
1: Yeah. They've described it as big T traumas and little T traumas. And the realities though, is that when you think about little T traumas, which seem like a minor thing. So it may seem like, okay, that's a, that's a minor thing, Sheila, that the teacher called you up in front of the class. You know, that's mm-hmm. not a big deal. That's a little T trauma, technically. A big T trauma would be something major, like, you know, witnessing a murder, getting in a major car accident, or something like that. What they've shown is that the accumulation of little T traumas has a greater impact than a big T trauma event. So if you think about just my experience, experiences of many others, where it's cumulative, it's not just one thing, it's personal, it's what's happening in my community, it's what's happening on my Father and their business being sabotaged, it's the lack of services in the community, it's being humiliated in front of the class, it's having certain doors shut, or you're just having to go the extra, extra, extra mile to actually have some sort of a breakthrough. So, all of that, you know, as you think about everything that I've laid out, as well as literal attacks to your body mm. and not just emotionally. That is what trauma is.
2: Mm.
1: So when we talk about racial trauma, we're talking all that. We're also talking history. It wasn't just my father, but what happened to his parents dying because of the whole TB outbreak. And then before that, and then we go all the way back to the enslavement of my ancestors. And that these are stories, these are experiences that are passed down generationally. And that Mm. is trauma. So that whole basket is it.
3: Right. You wrote, many of us are unaware of how historical racial trauma rather than individual trauma spans multiple generations and still affects us. Yeah. Yep. And you refer to this aspect of epigenetics. Yeah. Share with us what that is and yeah. what that statement means.
1: Yeah, So there's studies that are around that. And a lot of it originated with some studies around trauma with Holocaust survivors, that they were noticing that their children of Holocaust survivors or even the grandchildren were experiencing emotional issues and struggles that almost mirrored like someone who had gone through that. Mm. And it was, okay, how did that happen? Was it just that they heard the stories? Is that why this is the case? They also did it with First Nation communities and they they actually realized like that's part of it. Part of it is stories that are passed down in folklore. But then there's a part of it where Genetically, trauma lodges in our bodies and it affects our bodies. Um, not just our, our minds and, and memories, but there's a way in which we can, the stress and strain can affect our DNA. It doesn't change the structure of the DNA, but there's a weakening, and so there's a susceptibility to things. Mm-hmm. So if you look at like, the native population and just the high prevalence of alcoholism, it's like, okay, is that alcoholism because it just is from the family or where is that coming from? And if you look at historically things like the Trail of Tears, just what they've had to endure, that there are ways of managing coping. So the introduction of alcohol and how that has affected them even to this day. Mm-hmm. And so as black folk, You know, we, yes, we hear some of the stories. A lot of times there are missing pieces. Mm. So we don't know everything. But what we have seen is the stress that, for instance, with women, black women, the level of maternal death in childbirth is the highest. And part of that is that level of just the stress and strain that we carry from our mother, from our grandmother going back.
3: Mm, yeah, I think about specifically the high instances of hypertension or Absolutely. high blood pressure, yeah. and it kind of makes sense if high blood pressure is a response to stress, yeah. to elevated stress levels. And But that's pretty profound that it actually can somehow impact us physically to the point that something can become inherited yes. in that sense. So with that background in mind, so there was this initial initiative, Operation Exodus, that's this kind of precursor of busing. An experiment where you're bringing black kids in this particular community yeah. to white schools to advance their education. They actually have books and resources that mm-hmm. they need and a quality education. So in the 70s, and I imagine some people probably looked at the success of Operation Exodus and said, we need to do this citywide. Yeah. So this citywide thing happens in the early 70s. And what's the response to that? Are, are, do people in Boston welcome that and go, yes, we are an education town. We have MIT and Harvard. No. Let's educate our entire community.
1: No, no, not at all. So there was an uproar. And a lot of it's written in the history books in terms of the rioting that happened, the protests, the, the vast majority of white parents refused to allow their kids to go to school. So the schools in the white communities that black kids were being bussed into, in several of them, in several communities, Charlestown, South Boston, like in the early years, you would go in there. In some instances, there'd be like one black kid in a class and nobody else. Wow. Like none of the white kids showed up. And so- I have this friend whose parents' father went through busing and did not go to school. And he talks about just there was this whole generation of white kids who did not go to school, who were undereducated. Wow. And so they, in essence, ended up, some of them went into crime, some went into drugs, some... You know, got menial jobs. They
3: literally just did not send their kids to school. They did not, as send opposed their to being school. in school with. Yes, that's shocking.
1: Yeah. I mean, some kids did okay because huh. they were able to access like government jobs or they were part of a union or whatever. But there was a lot of damage in the schools for the white kids as well.
3: Now, did you get bus to high school? You mentioned Rosalind. Yeah, yeah Rosalind. So what was yeah. that experience? Because that's happening while wow, this whole yeah. citywide thing. Yeah. Did you experience any backlash or what was your personal experience like?
1: Yeah. So there was like an overlap between the two. And so Operation Exodus ran out of money and funding. And so then probably for the last year of it, we took public transportation to school At that point, because of Rosendale, we had what was mostly white school, but yet there were black teachers in education. I think that that had an impact not just on the black students, but the white students. Mm. Because they got to see a black person in some level of authority, Mm. which they had never seen before. And they, they were really on top of it, the staff there, in terms of how we were relating to each other at the end of the day we actually formed friendships because people you know Uh you're playing sports together you're doing stuff you know you still had a few teachers that seriously were still like we don't want you here but Uh for the most part what was set before us was we're going to make this work and so that was a turnaround Uh for me and i think for a lot of folk so while we were having a easier time Other parts of the city were crazy. Hmm. And so having nine siblings, we were not all going to the same school. I'm not sure why that was the case, but one of my brothers was going to High Park High, and that was insane. That was the one where lines of parents, and they're throwing rocks and bricks, and Hmm. there were fights in the schools almost every single day, and the police were involved. And it was like night and day from where I was.
3: As I'm hearing this, I'm trying to make sense of two things. Like One, I'm thinking, okay, this is the 70s, so we've already seen... Bull Connor, you know, Alabama happened, the sense of kind of outrage that tended to happen in places around the country where those things weren't happening. How does that happen in the 70s in Boston? Yeah. That feels almost like an anachronism, like it's in the wrong place in the wrong time, but maybe not because you were experiencing some of these hardships even before that. But like, how does yeah. that make sense yeah. in your own mind and experience?
1: I'm not surprised, actually, because mm-hmm. I when I talked about you can't go to certain communities like we knew that before busing. You just knew that that's not where Got you're going to go. Got it. Period. I also want to just say that when Operation Exodus ended, they started a program called Metco and it still runs today.
2: Hmm.
1: And Metco basically formed partnerships with suburban schools. So these are wealthy suburban schools outside of Boston. And they were like, okay, we would like diversity. So we're going to partner with Metco and black students will come to a Wellesley. Or Lexington, you know, these outside communities, the quality in the suburban schools was astronomical. It just was an amazing opportunity. So that program was working in terms of these suburban schools, mostly white communities, like 99% white communities, inviting students in. They also experience issues around race and racism, but they also had a real support structure where they were able to go back to the Metco program in that particular community and get support to continue to persevere. So their graduation rates are really, really high in terms of the black community and students going to college and completing college. So if I look at the comparison, Metco was more of a success, I would say, than the Boston public school system. Got it. And unfortunately, Boston schools are really in bad shape right now. So it's kind of reverted back to how bad it was.
3: Okay. So you experience, at least witnessing and at least some of your siblings, this extreme backlash uh, to education in particular. Yeah. And yet you are continuing to excel and strive and pursue higher education. Where did that drive come from? And at what point do you start to turn your academic interest to this issue of trauma.
1: Yeah. When I think about the education drive part, I think both of my parents, like they were very early on, we had the Encyclopedia Britannica in the <laughs> house. <laughs> and my father, I talked about him being very strict. He was, like he would not let us watch cartoons. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't. And he had this ritual every night he would watch news, the news on channel two. So in that way, I was aware of the news, but I think that, He really put a high, high premium on education and on how well our grades were and how well we were doing. And my mom as well. And so I think that's where that kind of came from. And the fact that they, you know, black parents want their kids to get a quality education. And they're willing to do what they need to do to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And so... I had that sense of this is a premium, this is a value. Mm -hmm. That's important to my parents, but it's also important to me. I love to read. And even when I was in high school and I was faced with a guidance counselor telling me, you know, don't bother applying to Tufts, you're never going to get in. And yet I went ahead and applied. I got in. (laughs) And I actually graduated from Tufts undergrad. But I I think that that tenacity really came from my parents. Mm -hmm. And as I watched them just continue to persevere, continue to depress, and they they were just not giving up. Got it. And so you mentioned graduating from Tufts. Uh, What was your degree in there? So sociology and then psychology was like second. I initially had gone in wanting to be pre-med. And then the first year, I really was... Struggling with this, it really felt like a, being a fish out of water. There was a lot of issues for me around not just how I fit in, but how am I disconnected from my own community? Because I'm literally plopped into this. I'm living on campus, and I almost flunked out. I was on, I had gotten a full ride scholarship, mm. so everything was included, like tuition, food, accommodation, the whole nine. And at the end of the first semester, I was told, look, you'll flunk out if you don't get it together. And that was a wake-up call for me. You mentioned in
3: that time period that some of what was behind this was a bit of a even kind of a self-destructive tendency. And even the, you used the phrase imposter syndrome. Yeah, yeah. Explain what imposter syndrome was and, and how that may have been a aspect of some of the choices you were making.
1: Yeah. So imposter syndrome is the sense of... I don't fit in here. And so at some point, they're going to realize, like, she doesn't really fit here. She doesn't really have what it takes. You're here as an imposter, pretending like you're qualified to be in this school when you really aren't. And that's the voice. That's the negative voice. And sometimes it's clear and you hear it clearly, but other times it can be very silent and more subconscious, but it can be a driver in terms of, do you feel like you can be who you are fully in this space. Can you receive the accolades and the affirmations without thinking, I don't really deserve this? Even though you did put in the work and you did work hard and you're not an imposter, but there's that voice that says that you are. And so that was definitely a throwback to my early primary school. So those early messages kind of come back in a very quiet way, but then start to sabotage us. And certainly that was the case for me that first year. Mm.
3: Okay. So you get the wake up call and how does that impact your trajectory?
1: Well, at that point, I I had been taking like physics, chem, <laughs> biology. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, You're are right. you insane? <laughs> Needless to say, I did not do well. And at that point though, I felt like I needed to look at is this what I really want to do even though I thought like from age eight like I want to become a medical doctor and so at that point just really grappling with I want to help people but you can help people in other ways mm-hmm. and so I did sociology and I, I did psychology you know internships and stuff were more focused on working in mental health facilities and that kind of thing so that shifted my focus. Do you remember like
3: what prompted you to realize this is a way that's a better fit for me to help people?
1: Yeah, one summer I was working at Ronald State School and it was for kids who were born with spina bifida, all sorts of physical as well as cognitive issues. And it was that experience that I realized I was on what was called the green unit, which was like the real base, base, baseline unit, like non-communicative the disabilities were like severe and it was that experience of realizing just that in the engagement like every single person like there's a worth there, there's a value there's things that delight and just translating that to people who they're not having like a severe disability in that way but they're dealing with emotional issues and that how to translate that sense of wanting to encourage people to persevere and to Mm. be hopeful and to know that they are loved. And so that led me to translating it into counseling and then working at a school for boys. And these were for emotionally disturbed boys. That was the title at the school. But then working there and working with the boys in the school and also residents So all of these jobs were kind of like stepping stones to my eventually getting a master's in counseling psychology and then working solely in counseling.
3: When we come back, we will hear how Sheila started working with victims of trauma in post-apartheid South Africa and how when she came back to the U.S., she made a startling discovery. That's coming next on Where You're From.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Truett Seminary. Are you sensing a call to ministry? At Baylor's Truett Seminary, students are equipped for gospel ministry in the context of a caring community. Truett offers a highly relational learning experience with faculty who are both world-class scholars and pastoral teachers. At Truett, students receive not only rigorous academic instruction at an R1 Christian research facility, but also intentional spiritual formation— we value you and your unique calling and will prepare you for kingdom work in a broken world. Learn more at Baylor.edu/slash
3: Hey, y'all, before we get back to our conversation with Sheila Wise Rowe, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next episode, a special in honor of Women's History Month. This episode features the Where You're From producers sharing their favorite clips from some of the dynamic women we featured on the show. This is Where You're From.
1: I remember him telling the story of a girl who was chained to a bed and had actually, when
3: they rescued her, they had found that she had inscribed on the wall behind her, Psalm 27, "'The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear?'
1: Like, you know, in my own mind, I will be prettier if I am lighter. So my job was to help my mom hose down the blood so that the mothers wouldn't come out and see where their son's body laid and where the blood was.
3: Now let's get back into our conversation with Sheila Wise Rowe on Where You're From. I think the term PTSD yeah. has become just in the natural vocabulary now, especially after the wars and Operation Desert Storm and seeing soldiers kind of have post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. So right. that's how kind of trauma got introduced. Yes. But I would say it wasn't until even the last few years that I've heard the phrase racial trauma yeah. as a category.
2: Yeah.
3: How did you kind of lean into that and particular aspect of it? And what prompted you to explore that particular aspect of trauma?
1: Yeah. In my work with individuals, whether it's children, adults, oftentimes issues around racism would come up and just how that was affecting the clients. But at that time, there wasn't a lot of talk about racial trauma in that way. And I think things really came to the forefront for me when we moved to South Africa to do ministry between 2005 and 2016. And so the experience in South Africa brought a lot of issues around what I saw literally was racial trauma. And so there were many ways in which that whole South Africa trajectory, apartheid, which basically marginalized, demonized, was abusive to the black population. That ended in 1994. (laughs) So there's a cluelessness about history. 1994. Mm -hmm. And so what I was seeing were racially traumatized people. And even with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that was held as a hope that, okay, this is going to reconcile black and white folk. We're going to have perpetrators and those who were victimized and lost children, husbands, et cetera. People went to school and never returned. Like, if the person comes forward and they confess, like, that was going to be healing. And in some instances, it was healing. And in some instances, what I experienced, because I worked in the townships, I saw firsthand that people were carrying trauma. Remember, it ended in 1994. So we're not talking that long ago. And so issues around, you know, do people feel like their worth, their value? So a lot of Black kids going to school and getting educated over those years post-apartheid. And yet, these are kids who are also coming out of families where there wasn't that sense of You know, we've worked through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Like, we're at peace about that. There was still this sadness and this burden and this trauma that kind of hung in the air. And it caused me to begin to more intentionally reflect on my own story Mm -hmm. in that context, in the context of trauma, of racial trauma, as I'm witnessing and seeing this there.
3: Wow. That's really interesting. So it's almost like the reflection of somebody else in another country and another continent caused you to make some connections that actually help you to see back into yourself and our own society and go, wait, there's something we're missing here. Yes. What prompted the trip to South Africa in the first place?
1: So initially when my husband was going to be working with the um, Evangelical Association of South Africa, and then we visited in 2000. And at that time, back and forth, we were working with a lot of nonprofits and churches in South Africa, in Johannesburg particularly. And so just forming those relationships, flying back and forth and support, it's mostly women and children, and it was the AIDS epidemic, really, it was huge at that point. And that was the impetus for, okay, God, what are you saying? After 2000, I felt like the Lord was saying, you're going to be back here. And during that five-year period until we actually moved, it really was God working on both me and my husband of, do we follow that call to actually be there and to minister? And so that's why we initially went there. And then when we got there... Things were different around work. So my husband ended up working for a small Catholic college that was amazing. So he did some really incredible work there. And then I did a lot of work with abused women and children and homeless women. So that's
3: kind of interesting. And I I would say even providential that you go to South Africa, not explicitly because it has a history of what is considered And what they were proud to boast at one point is the most extremely segregated system and policy that you end up in a country where that's their history. And that history was at that point still about 10 years old when you arrive. And can you give me an example of the way in which you saw the impact of what happened and what was reality for them 10 years before show up as what you would call racial trauma.
1: Yeah. So you had, in terms of the financial power base, was still mostly white-controlled at that point in time. And so I think for a lot of Black South Africans, there was still this notion of there are places that you can't go and things that you can't do. And there are ways in which I would go into a shop and I was would be treated a certain way. You know, I... would want service and wouldn't get it. I saw how other Black people were being treated. And the moment I opened my mouth as an American and they heard that accent, things suddenly shifted in terms of how I was engaged and how I was treated. But I witnessed all sorts of things in terms of people just talked down to, cussed out, you know, or you're in a community that is mostly white and you're going to visit a friend and suddenly a police car pulls out. Like, why are you here? Well, is that normal for you to just roll up to people and just go, why are you here? Mm-hmm. So I was seeing some of that and it just was bringing back this sense of, okay, this is familiar. I've experienced this right. as a black woman. The black men in my life have experienced this. So you described in South Africa... Yeah.
3: How you saw the kind of difference, the othering that yeah. you talk about happen. But I'm also curious about what was happening, what were you observing in people's interior world who had experienced apartheid and were still experiencing the effects in what you would call racial trauma? Like what did you see yeah. in how they were relating to you or others or their world around them that helped you peg it as this is traumatic?
1: Yeah. You know, there's a line in my book where it was like, how do you combat imposter syndrome when you're in an environment that says that you are an imposter? Mm. And so in many cases, what I saw were like these students who are very aspirational and they were working really, really hard and doing well. And then yet having to really deal with professors and then later in the workforce of trying to justify their dignity, their right that they belong there, and yet questioning it. There were people who were engaged in ministry, and I was told by one person that they had never eaten in the home of a white person. And the mm-hmm. thing is, this person's in a church that's diverse, and they have never eaten in the home of a white person. And I thought, whoa. And this was not an average person. This is a person who was in leadership, so this was crazy. Mm-hmm. But there was this sense of being excluded and again, just that sense of, you know, am I, am I worthy? Because if you look at this smaller number that they call black diamonds, and so they are middle class black folk who, are, you know, they have the great jobs. And, and so we have friends, who are like, it's, which is wonderful to see. So that's growing However, there's a the vast majority is not living that way. The vast mm. majority is living in townships or living in informal settlements. And so there's this two different worlds even within the community. And, you know, you have folk who are members of the Black Diamonds who are committed to uplifting those who are still locked in poverty. Mm. And then there are some, like in most places, even here, who... Don't really care. Okay. So at that point,
3: had you, before you get to 2016 and, and return to the States, had the phrase racial trauma been coalesced in your mind? No. Had you been exposed to it? Still not yet. No. Okay.
1: No, no.
3: So then you come into a society that, and just for those that don't remember, I mean, you had Michael Brown's yep. killing yep. Uh, Sandra Bland, yep. Eric Garner, all of that was yep. at its apex. And then- a political atmosphere in which suddenly racialized rhetoric and language becomes yeah. normalized and yeah. all that's happening at the same time. And so you kind of enter into that space with some sense of shock that even the place that you had recognized and even experienced racial trauma from before was still somewhat different. Yeah. So at what point you make the connection from South Africa to present day U.S. and go, OK, we have a problem. Yeah.
1: Yeah. When it became evident that it wasn't just something like out there, like I'm watching TV, but it was closer to home. It started to manifest the symptoms of racial trauma in me as a person mm. as in those around me. And so concern for like my black husband and son and daughter and I'm hearing from friends and I'm seeing in the media, I'm seeing that these are not just isolated things. And as a black woman as a mother, like when I see what happened to Michael Brown and him laying in the street for hours, I see Michael Brown, but I see like that, that could be my son, my nephew, one of my brothers. I mean, we know we have family members who have been pulled over, Mm. who have been taken into custody, who there was almost a case of mistaken identity and in terms of a trial and we know it's familiar And so, the trauma is, it's a vicarious trauma that we're Mm. experiencing. And so, it's as if it did happen to us.
3: Mm. It's as like as if it did happen to us. So, the thing that I really appreciate about your work is you don't just describe the issues or the the problems or even a diagnosis, but, you know, your first book is healing racial trauma. Mm. So, you, as a clinician are dedicated to kind of practices and encouraging people to overcome. Yeah. What have you learned in seeing be effective practices to heal yeah. from racial trauma?
1: Yeah. Well, one major thing, and I think that because, you know, even as I shared, a lot of the things that happened to me happened, and I didn't have a lot of space to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so that, I would say, first and foremost, would be Having a place to talk about it, and one is, as a believer, is to have that assurance that God meets us in those places of pain and that he grieves with us. And scripture talking about him holding our tears as in a bottle, you know, like it's precious. And that we have a a savior who has experienced everything that we've experienced. And that's, you just chew on that, you go, wow, that's like deep. And yet without sin. So he's familiar with what it is that I'm experiencing right now. And so I can go to the Lord and honestly lament and just be brutally honest about how I feel about what happened, the people, all of that, and grapple with that before the Lord and that I don't understand this. I don't understand what happened historically. I don't understand what's happening right now. And have that engagement with God, first and foremost. And sometimes there's a sense of peace that comes out of that and clarity, and other times it's just this mystery and I don't I don't understand it and I don't know, but... God also has people Mm. who will meet you and walk with you through what it is that you've experienced and are experiencing. And so whether it's a therapist or whoever it is, you want to bring in that person. The other thing is that trauma tends to lodge in our bodies. We talked about the whole thing with epigenetics and stress. And so what are the practices that we can release some of that?
3: That's so good. And one thing that really hit me, because it's one of my favorite verses, and you reference it in healing racial trauma in light of a, um, really like a personal breakthrough that you experience when you say that day I finally did it. Racism is relentless, and then you mention that even though there's a challenge of the fact that this will probably be here for a while, there's also this invitation from Jesus from Matthew 11:28 through 30, "Come to me, all." you who are weary and carrying burdens, and I will give you rest. What do you see as a, not just a believer, but a clinician in that verse that you're like, this is an important verse for people to understand?
1: I think that, for many, that weariness and that is a sense of I'm in this alone. I'm having to carry all of this, the weight of this this experience or this people or this community I'm just I am carrying the weight of, you know, the trauma from racism when the reality is that the Lord is inviting us to come to him with that, mm-hmm. and that He will give us what we need. Mm that we can exchange our burden for his. And scripture talks about his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He's there carrying that yoke and carrying the bulk of it with us as we navigate through life. So we're not alone in when we're watching these horrific things that are happening or we're experiencing it personally, like we're not alone in it. When we're burdened, we need rest. We need that sense of peace. And we have access to that. You know, Jesus said, I'm leaving the spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit is there and you have access to that. And the Holy Spirit brings Mm -hmm. you into all truth and imparts peace. And they're the fruit of the Spirit. Like we have access to that.
3: Mm, Yeah, so good. And in the second book, Young, Gifted and Black, right? A Journey of Lament and Celebration. You also really express a sense of great deal of hope for the next generation. Where do you get that hope Yeah.
1: I think some of it comes out of healing racial trauma and just seeing with this young black population that there's dreaming, there's hoping and yet they're still facing struggles, they're facing barriers, I um, mean yet they continue to push forward. You know, they still carry some of that stuff from their young younger days where it was, well, do I fit in? What is my play? You know, those kinds of questions, even though they're excelling. And that they had these wonderful, affirming messages for their younger selves. And there have been so many people who've said, you know, I'm going to give this to my, not just millennial or younger adult, but to younger ones. So that they're hopeful that, you know what, life is a story. It's a journey. And mm-hmm. this chapter of that story may not be great, <laughs> but this is not the end of the story. Mm-hmm. This is not the end of the story.
3: Yeah, And, you know, one of the things that you have a whole chapter dedicated to forgiveness, and I'm curious about how important it is to not just wallow in one's sense of what has happened to them, but also see something beyond that as a point of reference that can give context and even redemption to what they've suffered.
1: Yeah. I think that oftentimes we don't have a real accurate understanding of what forgiveness is, and that it's it's not saying that what happened was okay, Mm -hmm. or that- someone could continue to do it. That's not what it's about. And so in many ways, that whole adage about forgiveness is about you being released <laughs> to move forward. Or this sense of carrying unforgiveness is like you taking poison and expecting the other person to die mm. because it's toxic. There's no way that it doesn't affect us. It affects our relationships. Mm. It affects our bodies. Holding on to that is toxic. And when we hold on to unforgiveness, then we start thinking, I'm the judge, I'm the jury, I'm the executioner. I'm gonna look for a way to pay back this person. But the payback never works Mm -hmm. because ultimately the payback gives the perpetrator justification for then that person paying us back. And so it becomes a tit for tat. Mm -hmm. So not only is it toxic, but then revenge creates this tit for tat thing, but we wanna move forward free. Like, horrific things have happened in many of our lives, in most of our lives. And we can continue to drag that on with us into the future. Or we can go, this stops here. I'm not. This is not defining me. I'm not carrying this into the future or depositing this into the next generation. Like, what that person did stopped at that point. Like, if it happened when I was a child, I I am now an adult. I can basically care for me. Mm -hmm. And whether it's a little child who once was or the one who's present. Mm -hmm. Like, I am refusing to let this person win. Mm -hmm. And it is not going to destroy me. I'm moving forward with my life. Mm -hmm. And that's easier said than done in most cases. But as a therapist, I've walked with many, many people through a journey of forgiveness. And it's hard and it's painful. But when people get free... There's like nothing like that. Mm. There's, There's just this sense that the horizons open up and suddenly there's more in life.
3: Thank you, Sheila, for opening up about your own racial trauma and for your courageous work in speaking about and working to heal the racial trauma experienced by others. This is where you're from. I'm Rasul Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Ryan Clevenger, Mary Jo Clark, and Jade Gussman, and was engineered by Gabrielle Boward and Kevin Burgess. I also want to thank Annie and Becky for their help in supporting and promoting where you're from. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.